0: The key to a successful business isn't just plans, strategies, and profit margins. It isn't just mission, vision, your big dreams for the future, or how you communicate to your ideal clients. It's not just your product suite, your pricing, your sales, or being the person who takes decisive action. It isn't even just nervous system regulation, expanding emotional capacity, and enhancing your communication skills. And it's definitely not just faith, manifestation, vibes, intuition, and magic. The key to a successful business is bringing all of these components together and knowing which one you need when. Nature thrives when all of the elements are in balance. So do you, and so does your business. This is the Elemental Entrepreneurship Podcast, where we discuss the earth, air, fire, water, Spirit elements of building a thriving, successful, creative business in LA. Welcome to the show. Hello, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Elemental Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. So happy you're here with me today. This episode is a really special treat because one of my idols, heroes, mentors from afar, inspirations, uh, and all around really a fucking genius, Alexandra Beller is on the show today and she's going to be sharing her remarkable mind with us and some of her Um, practice around giving and receiving creative feedback and her perspective on this is really valuable. Um, Yeah, I'm not even going to say too much more about it. I'm just excited to have had this conversation and I'm excited to get to share this conversation with everyone. Um, A couple quick things I want to share before we get into the episode. Uh, It is June as I am dropping this, so happy Pride, everyone. And also, uh, we are less than 10 days away from summer solstice, and it is the height of the midway point of the year. Uh, We're headed into summer, even though I don't know if you're in LA like me, it doesn't feel like it. It's been very gray here for a while, but they tell me it's going to be summer officially uh, on the 21st of June. And I have a couple of things that I would love to share with you at that time. One is that for Summer Solstice, you are invited to take 20% off of Elemental Entrepreneurship Coven membership for the first three months, and that's good for all packages. So it is stacked on top of the 20% community membership that's always available for LGBTQIA plus folks, BIPOC folks, and single parents. You can stack that. Um, Everyone else, you can can take that 20% off. There will be a link with the coupon code in the show notes. So when you use that summer solstice checkout code, you will get 20% off of your membership for three months. I would love to see you in there. And you know, If you told yourself that this was the year that you were going to start your business, grow your business, get more serious about your business, and we are now coming up on halfway through the year and you are not much farther along than you were at the beginning of the year, it's a really good time to take this step, jump in, get some help, get some support, get some guidance. And uh, this is always the time of year that I really start talking about winter and quarter four planning, which might feel odd, right? Because we're coming into summertime, but the more of a groundwork and foundation you lay right now for um, things like Black Friday, holiday sales, the end of the year, the easier it is to Really do great things in your business at the end of the year and have it all be so organized that you can still rest and enjoy your holidays, but have um, sales coming in the door, money coming into your business, customers finding you. And that all happens in the summertime. All of that planning, all of that strategy, and laying the foundation for that work, it all happens in the summertime. So I hope that you decide to join us in the coven for summer solstice. Again, the link for that will be in the show notes. The other thing that's going on is that I have a Facebook group called Unstuck Group, and it has been free for the past six years. And we are transitioning that. It is becoming Unstuck Membership. Unstuck Membership is a evolution of what the free version of the Facebook group has always been, which is designed for creatives and creators of all sorts to find inspiration and have conversations with other creatives to give and share uh, feedback on our creative work, really with the idea of it being a multidisciplinary space. So maybe you're a writer and you share some work and you get feedback from a photographer or a dancer, somebody outside of your normal creative industry who might look at your work with a different perspective and be able to share some insights and ideas that you might not have thought of because they're coming at it with a whole different lens. In Unstuck membership, it's a very simple um, kind of idea and it's just to keep our creative wheels turning, to keep our creativity in motion. So every month there will be a theme for the month and then every week I'll be providing a very simple prompt and it can be used as a journal prompt, I'll be giving creative assignment prompts that will work for any medium of creativity and making, Uh, conversation starter prompts. So there will always just be kind of something going on in there where if you're in a dry spell or you're finding it hard to create, or you don't have any ideas, you could pop in there and you can look at a prompt, uh, and you can use an assignment or a, you know, a little, a little Kickstarter to your creativity, uh, to get you making again. And you can also share that artwork in the group and get feedback from other artists, uh, and creatives of all types. You don't have to share your work in there, but you will be welcome to. You will also have access to the over 50 hours worth of past trainings videos, lives, live um, video podcast recordings from the early days of this podcast. Again, there's years worth of creative content in there that's really valuable. The Unstuck membership, is included in Elemental Entrepreneurship Coven membership. So if you're joining the coven, you will just automatically be added to that Facebook group. But the other nice thing about Unstuck Group is that you don't have to be a professional artist or creator or creative of any sort in order to get the benefit of that group. I really want people who are just There to make stuff and to stay in motion with their making, and so it will be a mix of people who are professional creatives and people who aren't. And also, of course, like all of us have you know, most of us have creative hobbies that aren't our job that we still want to pursue and stay active in, right? So, like, I am a professional dancer, but I also am a writer and a musician, and I love having prompts and creativity starters for music and for writing, and I love to share that work with people. Even though it's not my job to do it, I still want to be in creative community with those hobbies. And so If you are a maker of any sort and elemental entrepreneurship isn't the right place for you because you're not building a business, Unstuck Membership would be the place to hang out. It is $4 a month. Unstuck Membership is $4 a month or $39 annually. And again, it's very light, very easy. There's not gonna be a ton of coursework, there's no homework. Come in, grab a prompt, make some stuff, share it if you want to share it, watch other people's creations if you want to get inspired. And that's what we're gonna be doing over there. So again, included if you join the coven, you can take that 20% off for solstice and uh four dollars a month or $39 annual, otherwise. And again, the link for that will be in the show notes. Okay, I know I've been talking for a while. I'm so sorry. That is all of my big announcements, and I will. Will shut up and let us get into this amazing conversation with Alexandra Beller. Thank you so much, friends, for being here. And I look forward to seeing you inside the coven or in the new Unstuck membership. Everyone, I have such a special treat really for myself, but also for everyone today. I have Alexandra Beller on the podcast. Uh, After many years of touring internationally as a professional dancer with the Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane Dance Company, she founded Alexandra Beller Dances in 2003 creating over 50 original dance theater works for her own company and universities around the world. She became a certified movement analyst in 2015 and transitioned into choreographing and directing for theater. She's been on the creative team for numerous off-Broadway and national shows. She started the Artistic Community Praxis Space in 2020, a place to support artists in the creative process. She is writing a book about art making called The Anatomy of Art, and she is currently studying to become an Intimacy director Alexandra Beller, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to say that I'm such a fan, and I am still constantly surprised that you know who I am. And like <laughs> uh, the way that we initially became connected, I knew who you were because we're both modern dancers, and especially at the time that I first became aware of you. Being a professional modern dancer with a body type similar to mine was groundbreaking and incredible and I believe at the time, I think it was around 2003 when I first became aware of you and your work, and I was in a dance program where I was one of the largest bodied people in my program and was constantly being spoken to kind of derisively by faculty and kind of told that like I would never really have a career so just seeing you and knowing that you were out there doing your work was um I'm getting emotional it was like really really powerful for me and it was really important for me and many years ago I put out a dance calendar and you were one of the people that I contacted to ask can I have a photo of you and a quote to be in this calendar and you were delightful and lovely and said yes um But yeah, I'm so excited just to have this opportunity to speak with you, to connect with you, and to have everyone else in my community who may not know who you are get exposed to you and your brilliant work. So thank you for existing in the world.
1: Oh, what a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I mean, I had a similar undergraduate experience and was definitely flat out told I should not try to be a dancer because there was not a space for me to have any sort of sustainable life in dance as somebody who was not in a thin body, um, which I ignored Um, and kind of ignored, like against my better judgment, because, you know, I think at the time what they were saying seemed rational. If you looked at the world, like there weren't any larger bodied people in major companies and supporting themselves through dance. So they certainly, I don't think was their place to, dissuade me from dance as a career, but what they were looking at it, they had some kind of point. And then I got into a really big dance company and that stopped being true. So I, I didn't want to become particularly a poster person for this issue, but I think it did have some kind of impact on how people were able, you know, representation in every form of identity matters. So I think it did become a place where people could take some kind of solace in seeing themselves and their possible future realized. And I I am happy to have been able to, to be that, although I feel like I had to bash through a lot. It wasn't quite a glass ceiling, but a lot of walls. Um, with my own body, and you know, it was it was a painful, a painful way to live for a while. You know, people felt very emboldened to just write about my body any way they wanted to. It was so amazing that I was dancing. It was such a an amazing thing. You know, and I say that sarcastically because yeah. it wasn't amazing. I had just you know twenty years of dance training and worked as hard as everybody else I'd like there was nothing really that amazing because i had a big ass like i don't like what's the big deal but to everyone it was very amazing and they wanted to tell me how amazing it was all the time yeah and at post-performance discussions they always wanted to talk to me about how unbelievable it was and it it was so uh you know short-sighted and I, i don't think we're on the other side of that by any stretch no but I do think it's at least become part of the conversation of isms. And I feel like size-ism was for a long time just very acceptable. Yeah. Um, you know, I think ableism, sizeism, and ageism um were really throughout my adolescence, like completely acceptable. Yeah. Isms. You know, I think certainly there was profound sexism and racism, but it was a conversation we were at least having. And these other isms were not even on the table for conversation. It was just like, yeah, you're too old for that. You're too fat for that. You're you're not, you know, you can't do that. Yeah. Short bus. You know, like uh, these things that, that my generation grew up and I'm older than you, but my generation grew up as completely acceptable part of the the world. Um, are at least now recognized as, like, you can't say those words. You can't, you know, speak in that way.
0: I mean, that was still the era where it wasn't wasn't outside the norm for there to be, like, fat suit movies and punchlines in TV shows. Like, that was – and not that long ago. And, I mean, we still get that sometimes. But, like, it's always – That discussion of like, it's so amazing, you're so brave, you're such an inspiration, like that kind of thing. Like, you're like, how are we not realizing that what you're revealing in this conversation is the incredibly limited view you have of people in larger bodies and their capabilities?
1: And their attractiveness and desirability and um, sexual power and, you know, all kinds of things that we're like, oh, you're relegated to the, the sarcastic best friend. Right. You're always the funny, fat friend. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I do feel like it's changing. It's slow. I don't you know, think we'll get to the other side of it in our lifetime, but I do feel like at least it's part of the conversation now.
0: Do you think there is something about you, about your personality, about your upbringing, that made your response to people being like, there isn't a place for you, and also looking around and being like, well, there are no professional companies with people who look like me, But for your response to be like, well, I guess I'll be the first and to like, what do you think it was that made you like, I'm just not listening to that?
1: (laughs) Well, I have to admit that I don't think I did feel like, well, I guess I'll be the first. It, it ended up, it turned out that way. I, I was talking to a a friend about this just today that they were talking about decision-making and I said, In some ways I feel like I don't make that many decisions. Uh, Things come to me and then it feels like, all right, it's already happening. Like I'm in the middle of it, you know? And I decided when I was about 10 that I was gonna be a dancer. And then that decision was made and it didn't feel like, well, you know, maybe I should write the pros and cons of, you know, becoming a professional dancer. Maybe I should go to law school instead. It wasn't really on the table for me to do anything else. Um, and I, I've had plenty of, uh, you know, drunk conversations with friends of like, you know, if you hadn't been that, what would you have been? And I have plenty of ideas. I, you know, I think I could have been very happy in a lot of other careers, but, um, this was what I was going to be. And it wasn't really something that I, I pushed through in a decision-making way. I certainly had a lot to push through in a like survival way. But even going to that Bill T. Jones audition, it kind of just came to me. All these people, no one had ever asked me if I was going on an audition in my life. And then all of a sudden, the week before that audition, five people were like, are you going to the Bill T. audition? And on the fifth person, I was like, yes, like apparently I am. And I just went to go, you know, to go to an audition and have fun. And apparently I was supposed to be there. So I went. I didn't go to get the job. And even at the callback, I didn't think I was going to get the job. It wasn't until it was like between me and 15 women. There were 425 women at that audition for one spot. So it was not in my mind like, this is it. This is my my opportunity. I'm going to crush it. I was like, oh, wow, cool. Lots of dancers. This is fun. Bill T. Jones is really impressive. I'm just going to be in this room. This is exciting. And then you know, it got smaller and smaller. And I was like, I've done really well. This story gets better and better that I'm able to go tell my mom. And then eventually it was me and 15 women in a room. And I was like, okay, this I could get. Um, and then I was like, okay, now I want it. And I'm going to get it. And then my Scorpio nature came out. My, you know, whatever it was, some algorithm of, of who I am, that, that is a fairly, um, excitable, impulsive, but determined person kind of came through and I was like, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to ring this. You said so many things that I want to double click on.
0: And one of them you got to before I could ask you, which was when you were like, I don't feel like I make decisions. Things just come to me. I was like, I have to know your big three and your human design. Everyone's going to be like,
1: you never asked her human design. Tell me more about Oh my gosh,
0: okay. I'm, then I'm so excited. We'll look up your human design after. All my human design nerds who are like, we must know. I'll put it in the show notes after I pull your chart. Okay. Um, it's another personology system, but uh, in astrology, so you're a Scorpio sun. Do you know your moon and your rising? Taurus moon, and Sag rising. Oh, that's a nice little balance to have fire, earth, and um, uh, and water in your big three. That's nice. Um It's also interesting to have a Scorpio sun and a Taurus moon, to have your opposites in your big three. That's got to be fascinating. Um, Something that you said that I think is really important to highlight, two things. One is that I love remembering that the, the root of the word decide in Latin means to cut. That when we've actually made a decision about something, we've literally cut off any other possibility. We just thought We're like, no, this is what it is. And so I think that for all the artists, the creatives, business owners, everybody listening, when we get caught up in trying to weigh out decisions or trying to be cautious or... Um, keeping lots of tabs open, like that's how I think of it, processing power. Like we are running in a lot of different directions trying to figure out which way we might go and not realizing that the longer we do that we're actually draining energy and resources from pursuing one direction Um, and that there's so much power behind making a decision in any direction, whatever it is, because then all of those other tabs get closed, all that energy and resource gets freed up and we can just apply it directly in the in the direction we want to go. Totally. And it gives us so much more power. And I also think that some of those decisions we make when we're a kid, where we're just like, oh no, this is it, this is it, this is it. Um, there's so little opportunity for like, baggage to be collected along the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't have a ton of inner critic going. And the thing, I mean, I love what you're saying. Totally agree. And I feel like the thing about those tabs open is until we've made a decision, we're not moving. We don't have flow. We're not motion. So nothing's going anywhere. I also like remembering that the Root of ambivalent is not about not caring. It's about like ambidextrous, both sides. Ambivalent is going in two directions at the same time. And so not being able to go anywhere. Yeah. My favorite theater author, Anne Bogart, talks about decision making. And she says, "Um, making a decision is painful because when you make a decision, you've killed every other possible decision. But until you've made that decision, nothing else can happen. And you can always make another decision that changes your first decision. You know, I think this attachment to like, even, and I'm gonna say something probably people won't agree with or like, but it's your show, so I'm pretty sure that's okay. Um, Even something like marriage is, you know, it's reversible. (laughs) Um, Like, I'm not saying don't go into it you know, feeling like I've made a serious decision and I really 100% believe in this right now, but we don't know the future. And, you know, we can make a decision with all the best intentions and a full heart and be like, this is it. This is absolutely 100% the way I want to go. And just because something doesn't last forever or go to the place that we thought it might go, maybe goes to a different place, doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. But now it's time for a new decision. And like, you know, I was married for 16 years. That was the right decision for a good part of that time. And then it became no longer the right decision. And I made another decision. And that took me in a new path. And, you know, will that be a forever path? I don't know. I can't say that. None of us can. I think that that's so important. And it it really
0: gets into like the essence of non-attachment and non-attachment is something I've been thinking about so much because I feel like the the concept of non-attachment gets um, misunderstood and perverted I think when I see people talk about it and the way that I see it most frequently interpreted is like not wanting to have expectations of anything or not wanting to commit to anything because you don't want to be Overly attached to how it turns out because really you're trying to protect yourself from disappointment, which I think is like ultimately really infantilizing, like telling ourselves we're not going to be able to handle being disappointed. Like, we can, being disappointed is not the worst thing that can happen. Going all in on anything and trying and giving something your all and your very, very best effort with all of your integrity and having it not turn out the way you thought it might is not the worst thing that can happen.
1: Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like one of the ways that non-attachment can be perverted is that it cuts you off from love. Absolutely. it's like, I'm not going to love anything because I don't want to get hurt. Right. And yes. I think, I mean, what I see in so many different fields is um, just a shy, shying away and siloing off from our feelings. And my my philosophy on feelings is that I believe they they exist in stratas of depth and like our happiness, our fear, our uh, grief, et cetera, they're all in the same place, but at different depths. And if we're willing to be, to feel our deeper grief, our shadow side, our terror, et cetera, we're also at the depth where we can experience like unfathomable ecstasy and bonding and soulful love. And if we're not willing to feel the tough feelings at that level, we're not going to feel the more excitement, more joy, which is fine. Some people want to live at a certain strata. There, uh, There's no, you know, objective better or worse strata to live on. You want to live on a strata where you're like, I don't want to open up to such darkness I'm willing to forego some of the ecstasy. And I'm gonna live in this kind of median strata where nothing's gonna shock me, nothing's gonna hurt me too badly, nothing's also gonna delight me that much. That's okay. That's where I wanna live. I have just always been a deep strata feeler. And, yeah. you know, for me that works and not for not everybody. But yeah. For me, I I'm willing to go to the the real pain and the terror to be able to have the the richness and the love. I love this. And I think also I wanna just
0: add for folks that like, to me, the the one layer I'd add to that is just bringing consciousness to it. Because I think for a lot of people, they're living at that middle strata unconsciously. Like at some point they picked up a, I also, sometimes we have like unspoken contracts with a past self, right? Like your teenage self goes through a breakup and you're like, I'm never going through that again. And then you're 36 and you're like, how come I can't have any deep relationships? And you're like, oh, well, because when I was 16, I promised myself I'd never go through that again. And now I've just been operating with this unconscious contract. Mm -hmm. Um, There are periods, like, especially if you've been through major life upheavals, big traumas, right? there might be times where it's actually beneficial to your nervous system to be like, hey, we need to be at a middle volume for a little while and I'm not taking any big risks because I literally can't process a big loss right now. And that if there's consciousness to that, that's a different situation. And then, you know, if you protect yourself from anything ever happening to you, you protect yourself from anything Ever happy. happy. But I also think there's something really important about um, examining our definitions of success. Because I think what some of that comes into that idea of if it doesn't last forever, it's a failure. A lot of us have very unexamined and inherited, like someone handed us a definition of success that we're operating from that might not actually be aligned with how you want to live your life. And if the only the only way a relationship is is successful is if it lasts until the end of one or both of your lives. Then that means every single other relationship is a failure, and that's right. like that. That level of binary is so limiting. But same thing happens in business and with art projects. If the only way your
1: project can be successful is if it
0: lasts oh, yeah. forever,
1: I you know <laughs> I talk about this all the time um, with my mentorship clients, where I try to unpack or dismantle what they've inherited in terms of their definition of success. And I asked them to talk to me about like, what is success in this particular genre, whether it's, you know, dance or whatever, parenting, what does it look like to you? And when we start going through what it looks like versus what it feels like versus what it, thinks like, there's often a little gap in there where I'm like, okay, so success to you looks like making your entire living as a professional dancer. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, that's what it looks like. Okay. That's a very slim thread to hit. That's a tightrope. Let's break down why it looks like that. And so we start breaking apart, like, well, why do you want to be you know, a professional dancer? And well, you know, I want this, I want that, you know, I, I love, I want to travel. Okay. that that can be separated from being a professional dancer. You can be a nanny and travel the world with a family. Okay. But I want to be in like this ongoing artistic express. Okay. Well you could start a contact jam or you could start a reading group, you know, and be in this, what else? Well, da, da, da. and often it ends up, well, my parents, you know, would be really proud of me, you know, or, or I would be able to say this name and people would look at me and I would have credibility or validity. Okay. So that's about your worthlessness or your worth. That's something that can be worked on that doesn't need a name. Like that name's not actually going to fill that hole. So let's, let's talk about that void separate from Some name of a company that you think is going to fill that void, that name's not going to fill that void. I can tell you, I had the name. It doesn't do anything for the void.
0: Especially it's, when you find out with a lot of those names, you're going to get that job and then you're going to make a quarter of what you need to survive and you're still oh, going totally. to
1: need to do many side hustles. Totally. I had a side hustle the whole time I was with, you know, one of the most famous dance companies. It looks the world. really glamorous until you get the paycheck. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot to dismantle around like well, that look that you see on people's faces when you tell them the name what does that look mean to you? Like, what, what is that giving you? There's just a lot of deeper questions that, you know, we tend to put everything all in one pot and we'll say like, oh, also there's this whole phenomena of, um, you know, when I get this, I'll be happier. When I When this happens, I'll be happy. It's like, well, let's figure out how to be happy now. Yeah. And then you can get those things. And I think that like, you know, it's also like, well, what does professional
0: dancer mean to you? Right. Because I feel like I made my living as a professional dancer for the majority of my life. But for me, what that meant was I also like I taught classes. I taught Pilates. I did one on one training with people. I choreographed. I taught, you know, like I taught at schools. I taught at like arts enrichment after school programs. I was like, if I'm dancing and moving all day, I'm making my living as a professional dancer. And whether or not I'm ever in a big company, the goal for me is to be in movement all the time and that's where I want to be and so i think sometimes like when we also get deeper into those those definitions of like what is it that we're really asking for and can i get that can i get that itch scratched in lots of different ways or is there really yeah. only one way
1: yeah exactly and that's that's a lot of what i i end up doing in certain kinds of career mentorship sessions with people is I start, you know, I'm like, let's take one, you know, let's make a list of goals. Let's take one of them and really break it down in this way. Like, what is it that you want to get out of this thing that you've named? I want to get married, or I want to be in this company, or I want to buy a house. Or what are you, what is, you know, maybe a Maslow's hierarchy? What is like the deeper need that you're trying to meet with this thing? What sounds like you're missing some bonding in your life. So maybe we could talk about a little campaign to reach out to some people that meant a lot to you that you've lost touch with, you know, I'm not saying don't get married and I'm not saying don't, you know, get off the dating app or whatever, but like, what, what can you do right now? That's going to fill the, the need that you're naming with that thing without having to wait for that thing. And that thing may not fill that need. So like, I'm not saying take anything off the table, but let's break down these goals to their deeper components is both larger and more granular and see like what could you get met right now and it doesn't mean don't audition for the company don't go on the date etc but it does mean let's not wait for happiness and I think the other thing that
0: happens that that also sometimes uh is like a secret uh or not even a secret but like a we don't recognize that it is a uh A misalignment that may be mm, (laughs) causing us to move in separate directions with the thing we say we want is that when we overly hang the expectations of our happiness on one thing, we accidentally make the receiving of that thing so high stakes that it also becomes terrifying to go for it because what if we don't get it? And then we are once again like pulling ourselves in multiple different directions and being like, oh, now I'm afraid to even find out because I've convinced myself that the get the the marriage or the house or the, you know, like this thing is going to solve all my problems. And once And I then when it, we do
1: get it, there's no possibility that it can satisfy all those things because we've hung too many things on it. And then we're devastated. I think people are frequently surprised
0: to find out when I share with them that like I only (laughs) have ever had one goal since I was like eighteen or nineteen, which was to be happy. Like when I talk with people about my business goals, they're they're like, "Where are you taking this company?" And I'm like, "No, I've only ever had one goal." Like the and here's the here's like what I feel is a healthy expression of non attachment in my life. I love my business. I work in it full time for the most, what my version of full time is, which is like, I work like 25 hours a week. Um, but I work in it full time and it is my pretty much sole source of income. And I love all my clients and I'm thinking about it all the time. It is an art project. It is a hobby. It is how I make all my money. And the day I'm no longer happy doing it, I will close it and not give a fuck. (laughs) And I think people are like shocked by that. But it makes perfect sense to me because my goal, I don't have a goal for the business. (laughs) Like my goal is not for the company to do a thing. My goal is to work that that makes me happy.
1: Yeah, I hear that. And that's, that's how I left Bill T. Jones and that's how I left my marriage. And that's how I have left and also started all kinds of things. And my career has gone, as you read, through a lot of transformations, but not one of them was like, I am no longer doing this. I am now doing... It was like, I'm just starting to do more things that make me happier and starting to do fewer things that don't bring me joy. And then I was like, oh, look at this. I've left the dance world and I'm now in the theater world. And it was just because I kept making the choice towards, well, this is exciting. Well, this makes me happy. You're like tripping down a path following a butterfly.
0: And then you're like, wait, I'm totally miles away from where I started. And I think that that, like following the thread of our own curiosity and creativity and excitement and trusting that if you keep following the thread of your own creativity and curiosity and excitement you're going to have a life that's fun um is a really rewarding and enriching way to live and I think that tied up in all of this there's the like cargo cult of capitalism and christianity oh we made it really far. There's a joke of like how long is it going to take before Sarah blooms everything on capitalism. We made it really far in this conversation. Um, but like the idea of deferred gratification being the goal of how we live, right? I th- We're all trained. I get to be happy when. I get to be happy when my body is different. I get to be happy when I'm married. I get to be happy when I own the house. I get to be happy when I retire. I get to be happy when I've hit this income goal. It's always this constant pursuit of forward with the idea that that it is normal and natural to sacrifice daily happiness and joy in the pursuit of happiness and joy. And maybe it's my neurodivergence, but that has never made sense to me. I think also like back on astrology, I have a 12th house sun, which is like very Scorpio-esque, like living really close to death where you're, I'm like, but what if I die before I get there? Like I don't get to be happy today.
1: <laughs> like, well, that's not bad. With a lot of those things, we don't talk about how much strife and work each of those things come from come with so you know of course for cis women like one of the things is like you'll be happy once you're partnered or you'll be happy once you are a mother and then of course you know they don't talk about how much uh you set you give up when you become a mother and I'm a mother and I you know ha- I totally willfully gave up all the things that I gave up and I'm I'm happy to have done it but motherhood, comes with losing other things too and partnership comes with losing certain things. And, you know, you'll be happy once you're, you're married and have children, but you'll no longer be sexually desirable to the mainstream anymore. So you won't have that happiness, but you can't be happy when you're single because, you know, your real purpose is to do. And it's like everything comes with something that is going to diminish some happiness for you socially, like from society, they'll tell you, oh, you're not allowed to be happy. You know, of course I don't buy any of those things. I'm just saying like, these are stereotypes of like, well, you'll be sexually desirable until you have children, then you're kind of off the the market. Right. But you can't be happy in either one of those scenarios, according to society, right. You can't be a happy, go lucky, single girl. You gotta, you know, tie it up. Yeah. But then you've lost your viability. Yeah. And so and then, it's, you know, it's all a bunch of catch 22s. And then, of course, there's the aging thing, right? Yeah. It's like, right, you'll be happy when you're retired, but then you're you're invisible, right? Because right. you're over 50. Well, you're not you're viable anymore. So it's all a bunch of catch 22 contradictions. Right. And viable is really
0: important because, as we all know, you're only used to society is whether or not cis men want to fuck you. So. Yeah. course it's all you're here for (laughs) (laughs) otherwise we need you to like it's like it's a very logan's run situation (laughs) that was a deep cut reference y'all if you don't know what logan's run is please go watch logan's run uh yeah sci-fi movie from the 70s where like the second you turn 30 you're incinerated because you're no longer fuckable perfect (laughs) yeah yeah, uh, men and women alike. Though in that movie, they're basically yeah. just like we all decided that as a society we're not going to age because oh, well, yeah,
1: thirty is the cutoff. Well, luckily we've rejected that for men. Robert De Niro just had a baby at seventy-nine. I, that, I feel like that's an accurate
0: refre- reflection of the LA dating scene, but that's a whole separate podcast episode as <laughs> a single childless person dating in Los Angeles in my forties. I can't tell you how often I meet people who at like 47 are like, I want kids someday. And I'm like, uh, how old do you think you are? Or like, you're going to be 90 at your kid's high school graduation. And that's cool. People are going to be like, your grandpa's hot. And that's my- <laughs> I don't know. It's odd. Um, not from, it's not for me. Um, So, one thing that we had discussed talking about before we followed our curiosity and excitement down this path um, was feedback. And I've been thinking a lot about um, how growing up in dance or theater or sports is such a valuable thing in so many ways for preparing you to accept ongoing education, coaching, and mentorship in other areas of your life as an adult because you are raised seeking notes, (laughs) seeking critique, seeking feedback, and wanting to be corrected, wanting to be challenged, Um, and not only that, but even going out of your way to find certain people to give you feedback and corrections because you know that they will help hone you. Um... So let's
1: talk about feedback.
0: I know you said this is one of your favorite things right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, As you said, I think feedback's essential. And I think part of it is about um, there's a a certain sense of our depth. And I mean that like literally spatial, three-dimensional depth. Um, Like this is the way vision works and, you know, light comes in and our brain makes up all these stories about what we see. And some of it's about depth and we can only see depth in the reflection of something on it. Mm. So otherwise everything is flat, two dimensional. So when we are trying to become artists that are affecting other people, we want depth. And I think sometimes one of the best ways to understand our own depth and how much we protrude out into the world and other people's experiences is to hear from them about their experience of us. But what a, what a delicate, vulnerable, scary place for both of you, hopefully to exist. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a scary place for the majority of people who are giving feedback. And I think it should be, I, I find it an incredibly, um, sacred space when I'm giving feedback to anybody, but mostly I give feedback to artists about their art. And, um, you know, a freighted space, a loaded space, because there's a, a whole web of personality and trauma and power and identity that goes into hearing about yourself and certainly it's a very scary place for the artist to be in. And there are a lot of expectations and hopes. Um, So one of the most important things that I concentrate on in giving feedback, and this is something I gleaned in large part from Liz Lerman, who developed Critical Response Process. um, And there's a book by that title um, that she wrote with John Borstel um, is about Honestly, letting go of opinion. And I think letting go of opinion dovetails with your topic of uh, non-attachment. So when I'm giving feedback to an artist, um, I'm watching their work. Of course, I have opinions. I'm a human being sitting there embodied, experiencing something. I like it. I don't like it. It engages me. It doesn't engage me. I'm bored. I'm frustrated. I'm excited. Whatever it is, right? I have a lot of feelings. Those feelings are, for the most part, irrelevant. What I'm trying to figure out is, what are you trying to do? What's your context? What do you want to be making? And then how can I help you do that? So feedback needs to, as much as possible, contextualize, allow the artist to contextualize themselves. And this is not just for artists. This is for anybody. So my experience is predominantly giving feedback to artists, but this is true of business. This is true of clients, coaching, et cetera. I do plenty of mentorship with non-artists and this, this all holds true. I'm sitting there. I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of work to do before I open my face and let my voice come out. And the work is to say, okay, yeah, that was my opinion. Now what is happening in front of me? And I think the two ways that feedback goes off the road, kind of bifurcates in two directions, neither one of which is right. Either there's this non-attachment to opinion where I'm like, this is what I saw, and you're naming kind of objective facts, colors, angles. There's nothing that deals with embodiment, emotion, sensation, experience. It's just like, this is what I saw. I'm not going to tell you anything about how I feel or how any, you know, I'm not going to deal in sensation or, or feeling. I'm going to just deal in thinking. And it doesn't really give the artist much to work with or the client, or I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel and all about myself and what I want to see and what I'd like you to make. And that doesn't help either. So the middle road, which I feel like doesn't get taken all that often is to say, okay, I had opinions. They're not useful right now. What is useful questions, but the questions have to be real questions. So I have to generate true curiosity. And this is what is true of nonverbal, uh, nonviolent communication and, you know, really healthy relationship communication is that when I'm asking you a question, it's a real question. I don't know the answer. I'm not trying to trap you. Um, I'm not trying to tell you something about yourself in the form of a question. You know, why, why are you doing that? Or why are you doing, why are you doing that? Like, I'm actually curious. I'm not judging you. I'm actually curious. And I can talk to an artist whose work like made me want to bite my tongue off. I was so frustrated. I wanted to get out of there I wanted it to be over. That's really interesting. That's a lot of sensation. Okay. That's making me really curious, genuinely curious. What's going on for you with that duration? I'm I'm genuinely curious. Like the fact that I hated it is irrelevant. That's just about me. It created a strong sensation in me. So it made me very curious. What's going on for you there? What are you what are you trying to do? And I have to do the work inside myself before I talk to them. And sometimes that's like 10 seconds, like the work is ended and here's our feedback session, go. And I'm open in my face and the opinions are like coursing through my body. So I have to do really quick work of saying, okay, yeah, but not important. That part's not important. What is important? I am genuinely curious. So talk to me about that duration. And sometimes they're like, I wanted to bore you to the point at which you were like going to bite your own tongue off. Because in the next section, which I haven't shown you yet, there's going to be this like double down on excitement. And I wanted you to be in this like almost hypnotic lull. And I'm like, oh my God, really well done. Yeah, totally nailed it. (laughs) You did it. (laughs) But if I came to them and they were like, you know, what do you think? I'm like, I was so bored. I, I did not enjoy that. It felt way too long. Even if that was their intention and they were like, I'm planning to bore you. I wanted to feel too long. And that was their whole goal. If I come out and say it like that, they're feel attacked and they're like, yeah, I know that was my goal, but maybe that wasn't a good goal. And yeah, I don't know. Now I'm second guessing this. Maybe it's not right. You're saying you didn't like it. I should change it. What do you think I should change it to? Oh, I've got ideas here. Why don't you do this? Why don't we try this? No, go make your own piece. Go run your own business. Go have your own psychology. Don't try to control mine. Ask me questions, and questions to me are the heart of everything, every relationship. True questions, though, not statements in a questions clothing, but like genuine. What are you? What is happening for you right now? What do you? What are you trying to do? Um, and you know, the enemy of questions are assumptions. And I think most of us spend a lot more time in our relationships, in our conversations, and in feedback in particular, making statements and and the statements are built on assumptions. There's an Anatole
0: Rappaport quote that I might butcher, but it's basically like, avoid persuasion until you can articulate the other person's position to their satisfaction. And I have it like written above my desk because I think it's so valuable to be like, before I, right before I get to the point where I'm going to try to like even suggest to you we go another way, I want to make sure I can articulate
1: what you think you're doing in a way that you're like, yes, it's that. Um, well, and I have empathy for it too. Mm-hmm. And I think about like one of the places where this is hardest for me is politically. Um, you know, and I'm like looking at them eviscerating Roe v. Wade, and I'm so angry and afraid and hurt and, you know, have a lot of feelings about it. The work that I want to be able to do is to truly understand like, okay, forget about the legislation, forget about the politics and the threats and all of these other things. Like you as a human being, what's the fear? What's the pain? What's the grief? What's like, that's making you like, yeah, you've attached to something that I'm not going to agree with you on ever. And I'm going to fight you to the death, Well, hopefully not to the death, but I'm going to fight you tooth and nail to make sure that you don't get your way on this legislatively But as a human being, like, what's going on for you that this feels like this is the path you want to pursue? And you want to pursue it so hard, you'll take away other people's rights. And of course, this goes for all kinds of politics and LGBTQ rights and all kinds of human rights, immigrant rights. Um, And I'll fight you on the legislation. But if I could, and I'm not there by any stretch. But the work that I'd like to do is to try to not just go into empathy, but go into curiosity. Like what's, what's painful to you? What's hurting to you? What's scary to you that makes you do this thing that makes you feel like those two people who are in love getting married threatens you. What, what's happening for you that that's threatening to you? Because it's not like objectively, it's not a threat, right? Like that's them, that's their marriage. There's nothing about you in it, but you're very triggered. And if I could really get to that place of curiosity, of like, what's triggering you so much? What's, you know, what's in that hierarchy of needs that's not being met? What's in your sense of worth, your fear about the way the world works, et cetera? Like, what's happening for you? And if I could really, truly get curious, I think then I could actually have some empathy. I'm not saying I'm not going to go into persuasion after that. But trying to convince people that their racism doesn't work in the world, that their homophobia, transphobia doesn't work in the world before really understanding what's happening for them, trying to convince people to take a vaccine without empathizing with, like, you're terrified right now. You're terrified of shooting a, you know, medicine into your baby. I can empathize with that without calling you a nut job. It doesn't mean I'm not going to fight for, like, no, we, we need to be vaxxed. Like we have a social agreement that we have to take care of each other. But, but that seems like uh, unmitigatingly scary to you right now. So like, if I could get into that empathy, I would also just like, you know, on a marketing perspective, like I would do a better job of selling, uh, you know, of selling something, selling gay rights to somebody. If I really understood what their, where their homophobia comes from.
0: This is so powerful and so important and I think um, so challenging, right? Like that, because we, we have, everyone I think has like reflexive responses to certain issues, um, especially the things we feel passionate about. And it is such, um, it is such a yoga, right? To be like, ah here I am confronted with this thing that makes my face get hot and that makes me want to run or fight. Like I'm, I'm having a big reaction to this too. And there's, um, in elemental entrepreneurship in, in water, that's where all of this would come up in the emotions side. Um, there's a a resource in there called emotional responsibility. And I literally write it out as responsibility, our ability to respond to big sensations. And one of the things that's really challenging for a lot of my clients, especially when they first start out, is recognizing how resourced we need to be to have the capacity to respond emotionally the way we want to it's like it's like 15 times more self-care and downtime than most people feel comfortable with like when we yeah. really start getting into it like all that quote unquote self-care stuff like that's not optional if you want to be emotionally resourced enough to even have the presence to remind yourself to slow down and take yeah. rest when you and encounter I- something activating
1: Well, I, you know, as I was having that thought and you were finishing your thought, what you said was slow down. And what my thought was, was um, I think a lot of our self-care gets relegated to the like, I'll take a hot bath at the end of the day. But we don't tune into our tempo needs and we don't even know much less honor, much less advocate for look, this is the speed I do things at. This is the speed at which I think, at which I speak, at which I get someplace, which I move through the world, at which I make decisions. And there's a, a set of expectations for how fast we're going to do all those things. And I'm a pretty quick time person in a lot of capacities. I'm a quick thinker, quick decision maker, quick speaker. But there are other times at which I recognize, and I do this in my movement practice, um, which right now is Bartania Fundamentals, and I teach these classes in which I teach so slowly. And we're lying on the floor and I'm like, so I you to feel the brain pouring into the basin of the skull. People call it my somatic porn voice. And I start going so slowly through sensation and still, and I, you know, make a lot of uh, caveats in the beginning. Like, even if I'm going too fast for you, slow down, don't stay with me, do it at the pace you need to do it. As slow as I go, there are still people who are like, nope, you're still on, you're still on the last thing. Great. I love it. I love to see people honoring their tempo. We don't honor our tempo in conversations and we don't honor each other. We don't make space for each other's tempo. You know, there's like this pretty standard length of time from when you've asked a question to when you expect the other person's voice to come out into space. And if that hasn't happened in that length of time, most people are like, follow a question or, you know, I'm going to prod you. And it's taken me a lot. I've been with my partner now for five years and, Um, he sometimes needs more time after a profound question than I might need. And it's taken me years to adapt to the tempo of just like, I'll ask a question and I'll wait. And instead of asking for a verbal something, I just look at him and I'm like, no, he heard me. Yeah, he's working on it. And then I just, Hang out. And it gets a much different response than when I poke and try to get him on my tempo.
0: And to tie this back
1: to feedback, um,
0: a really powerful practice for me in coaching is is a similar thing. Like it took me a while. Because I think the other thing we're really fundamentally tapping into now is insecurity, right? Like the amount of comfort with yourself you have to feel to ask a question and then just sit there and shut the fuck up and wait and keep waiting and keep waiting and let the other person take as long as they need but the other gift of that especially in a feedback or a coaching context is that if you start prodding or asking follow-up or moving their thought process, they will switch into a desire to please you, which I also think when we're getting back into the feedback thing we were talking about earlier, oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts. I love it when I have conversations like this. I'm like, do I want to finish this thought or go over here? Which one do I want to do? Uh, I'll go over here. Um, That uh, If you are the person seeking feedback, knowing what it is you're looking for from that feedback situation before you go into it, being clear and honest with yourself. Because I have had so many situations where I'm like, you don't actually want my
1: feedback. You want my approval. Yeah. You want my validation and you want me to say yes to what you want to do. And I think also And there's a lot of parental stuff that's tied into that usually. Um, And I think, I mean, the thing that you said about like knowing what you want from a a feedback session is so valuable. And uh, most of the time I find that they don't, Um, they either want me to say yes to what they're already doing or fix it for them. Both of which are, I think, parental with quotation marks around it because I'm a parent and I don't parent either of those ways either because I don't think that that's amazing parenting. I mean I use the same stuff with my kids in which I'm like, "Look, I'm going to do my best not to tell you what to do. I mean, go brush your teeth, but like I'm not going to tell you what to do with your life or who to be or how to express yourself. I'm going to try to get on your tempo and ask you the questions that will hopefully generate you to come out of you." in an authentic way and for me that always goes back to honoring your body and I think we especially in this country I'm sitting in America right now um, just are so cut off from embodiment and I I believe that most of the answers mm, all of the answers are in the body and then how we analyze and interpret and make decisions consciously and intelligently about those answers. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> that's that's the thinking part, and that's a totally essential part. And I believe in analysis, and I believe in thoughtfulness and mindfulness. But I think that most of the answers don't come from the pro-con list on a loose-leaf paper. They come from the body and we are not brought up to listen to our bodies. At all. Our education system is not brought up to encourage our children to listen to their bodies. And um, both, you know, on the gender binary and certainly in the space that is not the binary, none of it is honored. You know, men are taught to push through the pain. Women are taught to, you know, suck it up and look a certain way. People who are non-binary are not even respected for that choice. You know, it's just like it's gendered. And no matter which side of the gender you fall on, your, dis- your body is disrespected and discounted.
0: And I think this like lovely dovetails in a lovely way to the other thing I was thinking of before about tempo and what we need in order to actually be resourced enough to to be empathetic with one another with ourselves to emotionally respond versus being um moving quickly and reacting is I almost one of the words that comes up the most reflected back to me in terms of what my medicine is as a coach and as a space holder is permission which is like you didn't need you never needed my permission but a lot of people reflect to me that they feel like they get a lot of permission to move at the tempo that they want to move at, to be themselves, to do, to make the choices they want to make when they work with me. Because what will come up almost always is like, as we start to get clear on like, wait, I need that much time. Like I can only work really four hours a day and work well. I need that much downtime. I need that much sleep. I need that much time off. I need that much support. We brush up against not allowed. I'm yeah. not allowed to have that much. I'm not a, like ooh, like I just recently a client was like, "I am so angry that I keep needing to ask for help and support." And I was like, "Well, what do you think should happen?" And she was like, "I should just hit a cap where I don't have to ask anymore." And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> should, because
1: should should should. Right, like
0: because people should know or like and it was more of a thing of like I am the mind reading thing, I've already decided that there's only a certain, there are certain types of things that it's okay to ask for support with and other types of things that are too big. And I can't just trust other adults to mind their own boundaries and say no for things. So I should not be asking all the time for such quote unquote big favors, right? Like all of this judgment, wait, can I really never work before 11am? Can I really block my schedule off on Fridays and take no appointments? Like that's not allowed, right? All of this This idea of like when we really start to get honest about how we function best and what gives us enough space and resource, I think you should, like I rarely use shoulds, but you should find that you come into contact with beliefs, thoughts, and programming that you have that says, ooh, that is too much to ask for and that that's a gift. And you then get to like maneuver through that and be like, well, where did I pick that up from? That that the way I move, the way I think, the way I perform is, is quote unquote not allowed.
1: And as you brought in, like the the system and inheritance of capitalism, and I'm going to throw patriarchy in there. um, Tell you know is the mainstay of a lot of these false beliefs of the you know forty hour work week and marriage by this age and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and thinness and all of the things that you know whiteness, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to say uh, white supremacy. We got to throw white supremacy, white supremacy. supremacy. You know, and you know. Cisness and the gender binary, you know, we can name all the things for all the days, you know, um, neurotypicality. Um, All of those isms that I think, you know, stem in large part from capitalism and the patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, They are deep, deep cellular beliefs that it takes a ton of mindful sorting to say you reject it and it and i you know even i people that i know that are living counter to some of those systems and beliefs i still feel like they often have this fighting energy I am not going to work more, you know, I am going to take Fridays off and nobody can tell me that I can't. And I'm going to, you know, and it's just this like bound, slow and intense, like I'm in a fight, fight me on it. And, and it's not a, it's not a gentle given. It's not a sacred space. It's not a, a beingness. Yeah. And as much as so many of those things are givens that we are handed down, you know, that these things uh, are valued over over other things that is my goal to get to for self-respect self-actualization embodiment that like what my body feels now that's a given it's not good or bad it doesn't fit or not fit into something it is what it is it is as you said being yeah
0: this is so beautiful and so important i have one thought i want to share and um on this and we can start to move toward wrapping up but i read something recently and unfortunately i don't know who to credit the original source as i read it online in passing um but it was talking about no longer using the, the person was like i no longer use the phrase neuro neurotypical or neurodivergent. I use the phrase neuroconforming because it reminds me that there are certain brains and certain bodies and certain systems that are more capable of conforming to our, cer- our current societal pace, norms, expectations, and demands, and there are privileges that come with having a brain and a body that are able to do that, and that some people are literally unable to conform to those standards. And some people are able to conform in some ways and at some times. And that that's on a spectrum of ability to assimilate and the privileges that come with that assimilation. And I was like, oh, that is so important and so powerful. And I think it's not just true with neurotype, but you know, with all of these isms, right? Like with beauty standards, with body size, with age, with gender, with race, with skin color, like all of these things tie into the, the the idea of conformity. There is one standard that affords the most privilege, and the more you can conform to those standards or passably do so in public, the more you will be afforded, and the less you can do so, the less you will be afforded, and some people are able to conform more in some ways and in certain ways instances, and some people are not. And I think that that's such, um, it's such a powerful way to hold ourselves. Is this an area that I even can conform? And when and how do I choose to? Because there may be times that we choose to, there may be times that we have to for survival, and there may be times that we can opt out.
1: And like, when do our personal values support the effort that it takes to conform? And when do they not? So like, I really want people, my students, when I'm running a course to feel really supported and um, like they really understand where everything is and how everything works and, and they don't feel scared or lost when they're doing a course because I want them to use as you, you know, to bring back this idea of programs running at the same time, I want them to use that brain power for their expression, their vulnerability, their creativity. I won't won't want them to use it for like figuring out how the hell I put together a course, but I have ADHD and putting together a course and dotting all my I's and crossing my T's and doing the copy paste in the right way. And that's not my strong suit. And some places I don't care to work on that. So I send emails to many people and texts to many people with many typos. But I work my butt off to make sure that when I create an online course, it is so clear. Because my value system wants to prioritize the safety and kindness to my students. And dotting my I's and crossing my T's is going to help them with that. Whereas to my best friend, when I'm sending her a text, she's like, I have no idea what you were talking about there were eight typos in that. I'm like, right, sorry, here's what I meant. I don't, I don't care as much about that because I also value being accepted as I am. And part of how I am is like, I type too fast. I write too fast. I think too fast and I can't get it out in a correct way. And I will take that time to put it out in a correct way when I prioritize it. And I prioritize it in certain situations and not in others.
0: So beautiful. I know we are super at time but I want to I want to ask you one last question two last questions the the official last question is for for people who are putting themselves in a position to receive feedback what is something that you think they could do to help them go into that in the in the in the best way for them to really be able to receive the feedback that they're getting.
1: I think it's the same thing. It's curiosity, but genuine curiosity. Not I'm curious if you'll agree with me. I'm curious if you'll validate me. And I'm curious if you'll make me feel like I have got a, a worth in the world. But like I am truly curious and that it takes a lot of work to get there because it's a lot of like work with the ego. I'm truly curious what happens to you when you receive me, I'm truly curious how I affect you. And the answer to that may be: um, I felt really, um, I felt really scared around you. Like your the the way that your energy come cr- came across to me felt really um, confrontational and intense, and it it made me feel small. I felt I felt judged. I felt, et cetera. I felt loved. I felt seen. I felt, you know, it can be anything, but like to be open and truly curious to like how you're affecting other people. And it's not easy to do because we have a lot tied into feeling that, you know, we're doing a good job. I'm affecting other people. Well, people like me, I'm okay. I'm, you know, and, and if I'm not, I'm not okay. Like at a deep, deep identity survival level, dark void level. And to be able to go into feedback saying, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how this, I'm not you. I can't know. how. How did this affect you? What did it feel like to witness this, to witness me now? And then to also on the other side of that, so that's the humility side. And then on the other side of that, your boundary side, your self-care side, your advocacy side to say, Yeah, that what you're saying right now is about you. It's not about me and it's not useful. And I'm not going to engage with it either by leaving or by telling you or by just rejecting it (laughs) and being able to balance the humility of genuine curiosity through a lens of like, I'm really looking at who's in front of me and I'm saying like, you have my good interests at heart. You're definitely you're here for me in a good way. You're not putting yourself on the table too much. I'm gonna really take this in. Or, mm, there's a lot going on in this room right now. And there's a lot of power going on, and I don't like what's happening. And I'm gonna take myself out of this. This is not for me. And figuring out what the you know, like where you need to exert one and where you need to exert the other and doing that introspective and embodied work. And again, I'll just bring it back to the body. How's your body feeling right now? Oh, I'm feeling, it's really hard to hear you say that. I'm feeling a lot of shame. I'm feeling a lot of shame, but I'm also feeling seen and heard and cared for, Like, I can see your energy, and I can see that you're not trying to hurt me with this. So I'm not going to fight you back on it or reject this. I'm going to sit with this, and these are just uncomfortable feelings, and I'm going to let myself be uncomfortable um, because I can recognize that you're not trying to hurt me. You're trying to help me, and I'm going to let myself sit with this, or I'm going to protect myself because I think something's going on here I don't like. And it's hard to have both of those systems running at the same time, protection and vulnerability. But like, isn't that how we're going through the world too? like balancing our protection with our expression and vulnerability? And I think sensitizing
0: in our own body to recognizing when I'm feeling, oh, it's sucks that you receive me that way, that I hurt your feelings, that I came across aggressive, but I also believe that you're not trying to hurt me and, and I there, there's something for me to look at here versus I need to protect myself and leave. Being able to feel where those two things happen in your body and how they're different and attune yourself to them and also if you are somebody like I am who has a lot of wounding around the idea of being misunderstood and like the need to over explain um like when those things come up being able to recognize when you're like oh okay I know where I'm at in my body and how I how I hold those things how I regulate through those things everyone's gonna feel that and experience it slightly differently and like in a different place in their body Um, and the only way to figure out what that is for you and to like fine tune because I can hear the question coming in now like okay I listened to that podcast episode and Alexandra said I'm supposed to be able to determine the difference between when someone has my best interest at heart with feedback and when they don't how do I I do that (laughs) and the answer is like it is going to be probably in your body and you're you are the only one who has that map and can
1: sensitize to that and I think you can also listen to the language Mm -hmm. so I mean I've got a lot of telltale things when I hear people giving feedback you know well what I'd like to see is okay done (laughs) this you're not we're not making your piece we're making my piece I don't care what you'd like to see I I care that you want to know what I want to make not what you'd like to see so there are like phrases that I can listen for in a conversation where I'm like, it's not that they don't have my best interest at heart, but it's not going down the right path. And I need to use a little self-protection. I mean, this is the same series of of actions that we need to do when we're um, doing anti-racism work where, you know, we need to be able to sit in the discomfort of shame and say, I have something to learn here. And then, you know, sometimes people can speak to you in a way in which you're like, okay, this is actually getting abusive. I think there's something in the content here that I need to hear. But the way this is happening right now is uh, abusive right now. And so I'm going to shift somehow out of this, not by defending myself, not by talking back to you, but I'm going to go somewhere else for this information. But I'm going to take this as an opportunity to recognize there's something for me to learn. This doesn't feel like the right learning environment. Let me go seek out a learning environment that's going to gonna match me better. Yeah. This has been such a
0: beautiful, valuable conversation. Thank you so much for coming, for sharing. And where can people find you? Is there anything you want to promote? Do you have anything coming up? What do you want to share with the people?
1: Oh, I have. A, there's a beautiful play that I movement directed that's running in Chicago for the next month, the month of May. I don't know when this is coming out, so that may be too late. Um, I run an artistic community called Praxis Space where I send out all kinds of creative prompts and essays and scores for people to help them make things. And I'm online. If you Google my name, Alexandra Beller... Alexandra Beller dances. There's a whole website full of stuff and classes and ways to connect and workshops and fun stuff.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you.